Welcome to episode 142, Near-Death Experience with David Williamson. I feel so honored and blessed that I've been able to speak with David. I first heard him speak about his NDE on Clubhouse, and I felt his presence, his love, his authenticity, and the power of his message, and I knew that it would be beneficial to get his message out to our audience. David talks about his experience of who he was before, during, and after his NDE, and I know that you guys are going to really enjoy this show. You may even find yourself really opening up even more ever than before, because I've noticed my heart really open up while listening to him speak about this beautiful experience. I'm so excited to have David Williamson on the show today, and David was actually on Clubhouse I think it's been a week now. Um, I was on Clubhouse and I heard his story about his near-death experience. And the moment I heard David speak, I knew that he needed to speak to more people and share his story about his life. And I feel like it's so powerful. It touched me in so many ways. And I know that it will touch you just sharing from his heart. So David, welcome to our show. And I would love to hear a little bit about you before your near-death experience and who you were before you had your near-death experience. Okay. Um, I'm, I'm from originally from North Carolina, small town in North Carolina called Yanceyville. Um, my father was in the military, so we did move around a little bit. I lived in Germany lived in Oklahoma. I actually graduated from high school from uh, in Oklahoma and um, went to college at uh, Florida A&M University. Um, was a, always a very spiritual child all the way up through high school, all the way up through college. I was recruited to play football and baseball and for academics and um, ended up taking an academic scholarship at MU and uh, stayed there, came after graduation. Um, came to Atlanta, uh, went back to school, got my master's degree, got married in that time, got divorced in that time. <laughs> um, but I, I've, spirituality has always been important to me. And um, so I've always been a spiritual person. So when I came to the, the, you know, to the place of just trying to understand everything, you know, I always asked for experiences that would help me understand stuff. So maybe I asked for <laughs> the near-death experience even. But um, yeah, spirit has always led me. And I've always, I never complained about experiences as long as I got something from it, you know? That's really powerful. And I feel like that's important to think about too, before we get into the story of what happened to you. And I know you said you were into sports and you always felt drawn to spirituality. Was there any kind of sensitivity that you felt like was a pain for you to have when you were a child because you were open to the spirituality? Did you have any struggles that came up for you? Yeah, I didn't like, I, I didn't really relate to people fully like I had to almost compartmentalize myself in order to to keep um to keep friends like I like there were there were things now this is for me now from their perspective they might say that I was just a, a, a cool guy that they enjoyed being around but for me it wasn't easy deciding who I wanted to be around you know because um, 
when I, and I got a lot, a lot of the words that I use now, I, I have a problem sometimes with because they're so loaded, but I'm an empath, a deep, deeply empathic, and I feel so much. And sometimes when people were around me, I didn't understand it as a child, but it was just, no, it was noise to me. So I would, I would literally ask my mother at age four, five, and six, if, I, if she would tell my friends by myself, you know, but, um, over time, as I got became more self-aware, I realized that as a child, I realized that I was way too serious. So I always had friends that made me laugh. And I, you know, so I would always have friends in different, um, they would serve different purposes. And I always made sure that no matter how many, you know, if, no matter how few friends or, that I held stayed around um, Extensively, I always had at least one that made me laugh because I was very serious, you know, very young. I love that you share that because a lot of the people listening to the show are all empaths. And I often talk to my my husband, Tony, and I said, you're brought into my life to add humor because that's something that can come within me too, is to be too serious at times. And it's so important to laugh. So I love that you just shared that with us. And what I would like to do is really kind of fast forward in your life with right before you had your near death experience. And I just want to say to the audience too, this is something for you to share this right now. This is the first year that you're actually going public with it, right? How many weeks ago did you start sharing the story? Yeah, I think the very first time that I shared it was in the new year on Clubhouse because I, I, I was telling people that I've been sharing it for six months. But then when I looked at my um, join date Clubhouse, it was December 20th. And I remember even after I joined Clubhouse, I didn't use it for at least a, a week or two. So it would have had to have been like after the new year that, that I actually started speaking on Clubhouse, you know? Yeah. So, um, so I've really only been talking about it on Clubhouse for the past couple months, and it's a, it's heavy to do. So I I generally I come and I might not go back on Clubhouse for a few days or a week <laughs> because it, like I literally get a headache after I do it, you know, after I yeah. speak about it, you know, and it get and the conversation is, yeah, it, and it seems to happen anytime there's a lot of growth. Like if there if the conversation is very spiritual and I'm, and I'm really growing from it. It's like, it, it's draining. I don't know. And I don't know if it's because I'm, I try to speak from a place that is not really just David is not my ego. So it's almost like, I feel like I'm trying to pull from that experience. And it's like, maybe I'm, it just takes energy to do it because, but it, it tires me sometimes when I'm on clubhouse and there's a lot of voices, a lot of questions, a lot of, you know, Totally. This is relaxed. So I probably would be okay. Yes. No, I was on one of the clubhouses when I heard your story and I was thinking, how is he still going and answering all these questions? Because it's a lot of energy being thrown at you and people are tugging on your energy, wanting more. So I could understand yeah. that. And I've interviewed, I don't know if you've heard of her yet, but her name's Anita Morjani and she had a near death experience and she wrote a book called dying to be me. And she spoke about how after her near death experience, and she started speaking to people, she was getting drained by people, you know, asking her, she had, had a cancer. Um, so she was completely drained and she just 
actually came out with a book about different things being an empath because of the situation that happened after she had her near-death experience, even more so than before she had it. So what you're saying makes complete sense. And it because you're extra sensitive, I'm sure you are needing more grounding time too. So that makes sense. Yeah, I like, I mean, I appreciate you even sharing that because I, I thought it was, I, I don't know, I almost thought it was just me not being as healthy, you know, because I did have a heart issue, you know, and I was thinking maybe it was just my health, you know, yeah. needing to get more healthy and focus on, you know, you know, you know, focus on diet and stuff like that. And right. And you never know, it could, <laughs> it could be connected to, but just an added little piece to it that you're not alone. And I would actually love to hear about that when to kind of segue into um, the thing that came up for you with your heart. If you can talk to us a little bit about the process of what was going on before the near-death experience and that story that where you were brought into a space where you had to get help for your heart. Okay. I was, I mean, I was born with what is called a bicuspid aortic valve, which simply means that my bicuspid valve was divided in half. My aortic valve was divided in half instead of having three flaps that opened up freely. So my heart had to beat extra hard in order for my body to get blood. And um, so prior to my surgery, I could literally, I could hold my hand out and you would see my hand shake <laughs> to my heartbeat because it was beating that hard. Wow. And um my body temperature was probably hotter than normal. I would I would say most of the time it was 99 point something or close to 100. Um, and that was normal. And, um, but, um, and, and then, I mean, I played sports. The doctor, the doctor that approved me, the only reason he approved me for playing was because I broke down crying in the office and told him that I promised him that if I felt anything that I would stop. <laughs> But I cried so much that he didn't he didn't feel comfortable <laughs> saying no, they're not gonna be able to play. So you got your and way and I, you played. <laughs> so so you started to play football and did you find yourself going into football ha- struggling with your heart at all during that time? No, my I mean, what would happen on occasion is that I would have these palpitations and I would have to take it, you know, just stop and take a deep breath and get my heart to slow back down because it would be so hard that it, it was i mean it was like um it was you couldn't you could hear it it would impact my breathing like you could hear my heart beating over my breathing you know wow and um so i would have to stop and just calm down but i i i really was good in football i was recruited by a lot of big universities to play and um i could have kept playing but i decided um I had knee surgery and that was probably a bigger factor on my decision to not play football in my heart. Cause I always felt like I could play football for whatever reason. It was easy for me. I was good at it. And I didn't think that my heart would get issues. You know? Yes. So now um, fast forwarding to the time that you started to recognize there was something going on with your heart even more deeply where you experienced that moment of having to get that help with your heart. When was that? How old were you? It was um, in 2017, so I was, um, I'm 44 now, so I was probably 41, yeah. (laughs) So tell us about that story. 
of that moment. All right. So, yeah. So on February 1st, 2017, and I remember this because it was a, a blue blood moon or something like that was going on at the time. Yeah. But um, I was sitting, it was, I was sitting here in the garage. I was talking to some friends and um, from football, I have seven herniated discs, um, some in my neck and some in my lower back. So I all, my back always hurts. And uh, so my, when I was sitting here, my heart literally, it ripped at that moment. I felt it. And I remember telling my friend because the pain was not in my heart at all. It was not in my chest. It was in my back and in my shoulder. And I remember I looked at my friend and I said, um, I said, man, this back pain just shit the gears. Like it's really, really hurting now. And to the point where I was literally holding my shoulder up because it felt like it was like ripping off. <laughs> like it felt like it was going to come off, you know? And, um, so that pain, somehow I was able to you know, integrate it and just, it was uh, my back is just hurting differently now. So seven days later, uh, I was at work. Um, I was leaving work and I was telling people goodbye. There was a lady who had been sitting in the chair for a long time. I asked if she needed a ride. She said no. And then when I went outside, I um, left, I jumped off the curb and uh, a guy was asking me as I was getting off the curb, he said, uh, he said, see you tomorrow, Mr. Williamson and I said I'll, I'll see you tomorrow and immediately after I said I stepped off the curb and, and acknowledged him I felt something really strange in my heart and um and at that point I was still able to breathe fine I was I just it just didn't feel right you know so I sat down in my car and I called Trisha who's my my son's mother and um and I asked her I said um I told her I said I think I'm having a heart attack I said but I'm fine right now so I, I'm I'm gonna make to make sure I'm just gonna home if, if anything if anything changes so I drove home and I was breathing I started breathing differently I was like okay this is this is a heart attack but I'm not still still feeling relatively okay so I get home I make a snack I sit for a little while and I was like okay now it was really bad I can't <laughs> I need to go but having deep to, to deep breathe to to keep you know, to keep my oxygen levels up because the, I'm, what I'm assuming is that the blood wasn't flowing through my veins. It was actually maybe pouring out into the cavity at that point. And, um, and um, so when I got to the hospital, I was not, I really wasn't frantic, but I was, and I think that that was why they were not paying attention to me because I was telling them, I was like, I'm having a heart attack. And I was really calm and I was like, um, I, I need to be seen like now, like I'm, I'm in the midst of having a heart attack. My heart, I can't, I'm starting to have problems breathing. My hand, and, I, and he asked me to sign some paperwork and then my hand was shaking and I couldn't, I was like, I can't sign anything. And I said, and if you continue to push the, you know, the issue of paperwork is going to be a cadaver out in the lobby and you ain't going to be able to sign anything anyway. <laughs> exactly. So finally, <laughs> <laughs> so they finally they let me back and shortly after I went back I, I mean I, I um I remember them gathering around me and that was it I flatlined shortly after that and I remember when I closed my eyes um the thought that I had I was calm I was very calm and um I remember think saying to myself that this is going to be some beautiful sleep and I closed my eyes and um from there it was just one transition after the other you know <laughs> So when you closed your eyes and you had that experience, what was the first 
looking back on it, what is the moment that you knew that you were having a near death experience? Yeah. The, when I closed my eyes, um, I still felt like I was, I was dying, but I was, my awareness was still on, it was still here, you know? So, cause I was seeing people in front of me, but not really with my eyes. It was, it was blackness in front of me mainly, but wherever there were people, there was like, um, almost like pixels. It was dots. It was like white dots, like light dots. But, um, so I knew that that's where people were, you know, but that was, it feels like that was as I was dying because when I died, that totally went away. And I was now floating above my bed, looking down at my body and seeing the people that were resuscitating me, you know, they're working. And then once I floated above the room, I noticed that there was a woman in the left corner, in the far left corner of the room. And, uh, and from that point forward, my attention was kind of fixated on this woman um, and what was happening above me, which was heaven. And, and it was beautiful. What did it, was, it look um, like? So for me, it was, you know, because I hear people describe it looked like deep, deep space. And it was black, very black, you know, deep blackness. And But the blackness was enveloping, like it was all around me and it was in me, like it was no separation between me and the blackness. But what I did know is because my attention was going from the light that was to my, um, behind me and to the right, and to this woman that was below me and to the left, which is weird to me that I can describe those orientations because when I explained it to another person who had a near-death experience, they literally said, I was looking up and to the right and I was looking down and to the left. And I was trying to understand wow. that, yeah. Yeah. So, um, but the, the, the light was there, but the light for me was so far away. Like I was way out in, in this, in space. And it was, and I felt when I changed my attention from the, the far, the back, right to the bottom left, I could see my light. Like I was a light. Like I felt like, um, if I had to describe the closest thing to what I was, it would be a star, you know, and the, um, or just a, a orb of light. But, um, and the light that was behind me that felt like it was the light that people speak of, it felt like it was another star, but it was bigger than me. So it's gravitational pull. This is what, this is how I rationalize it now as because I was floating towards it, but I was so far away from it that I felt like I could slow that process down if I wanted to, or I didn't have to go there, or I could have just blinked my eyes and just been there. You know, I could have just mm -hmm. instantly went there if I wanted to, if I but, but I didn't want to. So I was so far away out in space, just enjoying that feeling because all felt, felt like perfection. Like it was love, um, compassion. It just felt like I was being totally enveloped in love and compassion, you know? And, um, and when I looked out, I could see some color, like the, almost like the Aurora Borealis. Um, uh, it just looked like deep space and mm -hmm. most of the time. But um, I remember um, like having thoughts, but having the any, there was no enough time between the, the thoughts being formed and the answer being in the blackness. Like the blackness was literally, like I, I felt like it could talk to me, you know, like it, it, it was a 
And it was perfect. Like I did not feel any need to move anywhere. Did it feel like telepathic communication or like an inner knowing when you were having that moment? Yeah, it felt like a, a like an inner knowing, like an instant knowing. Like it was, I could see, I could sense that I was something and the blackness was something. Mm-hmm. But but there was no gap between me understanding like anything that I thought it reflected like clarity, like even to the point where if my question wasn't, didn't make sense, I still got clarity. You know what I'm yeah, saying? So I know was, exactly what you mean. There was no confusion. And it was almost like um, just floating and it was perfect. And I felt no pain because pain for me is a normal, like I wake up and I'm in pain, you know? Yeah. So, so there was none of that. I felt nothing. I felt completely perfect. Yes. And, um, and also my movement back to the lady, my movement was impacted by me staring at her. Like she anchored me and it, and it was like her compassion is what it was, but I didn't have human thoughts about it. I was really just almost like, um, just observing her. And I was very interested in why she could feel so much compassion for me. You know, like, why does she feel compassion for me? And it made my floats towards the light, even though I was far away, it made it even slow down more, you know? And uh, she was pulling me back, it seemed like. Okay. Now, do you know who this woman is now? I don't, but I've had some conversations with um, some spiritualists. In my mind, she was just a hospital employee who... um, who may not have been involved with the resuscitation effort, but she may have been new, or she was somebody who may have been keeping records on you know, like the death date or when I came in, or, you know, stuff like that, the time and a timekeeper. But um, but when I came back, when I was resuscitated, um, I remember the first thought I had was annoyed. I was annoyed that they woke me up. I was like, damn, they woke me up. Like, why did they wake me up and have good sleep? You know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then the, the, but the very first thing I said was I leaned my hand head forward to try to find her in the left side of the room. And, and in my mind, I saw her, but, but I actually, I said, are you okay? That was the first words that came out of my mouth was I leaned forward and I said, are you okay? And, uh, and then I leaned back. Now, some people are suggesting to me, cause I don't remember her response. I don't remember even seeing her face change or anything. Right. Some people are suggesting to me that she wasn't there, that she was a, an ancestor or a spirit that was holding my attention to keep me from focusing on where I was at. Mm-hmm. Because I know, I know personally, had I been allowed to totally focus all of my attention on the blackness, which in my mind was heaven. <laughs> right. Like I would have stayed, like I would have stayed. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have even looked, I wouldn't have looked back at the, at the earth. It was yes. her. And it was her compassion that made me look back at, at what was happening in the room on earth. Wow. Whereas where I was at was so amazing to me that had it were not for her, I wouldn't have looked back. Yeah. That's very powerful. As you're talking about her, I have goosebumps. And, you know, maybe it's one of those things where I know I've heard some other stories about near-death experiences, how over time details start to unfold without even trying for it to happen, but maybe you'll have your own clarity on that where you know even more so how she's connected to you. 
But I think that's so special that you remember those moments with her. She, when I think about it, like when, when I, cause it, in my mind, I had already explained that it was a hospital employee that wasn't yeah. involved. So, but when, when the spiritualists and uh, the mediums suggested that it could have been a, an ancestor, my aunt, my mother had a twin sister that passed um, a few years prior. And um, it immediately made sense that it could be her because um, growing up, I loved her the same way I love my mother. Um, I thought it was magical that she was my mother's twin sister. So I, it was almost like I felt like I had an opportunity to have two mothers, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah she, had, she had her own children, but I still didn't care. That was my other mother, you know? I love the, that. <clears throat> excuse me. But um, so, and uh, like, even when, like we, when I was a kid, I wasn't, like when my mother was like, okay, you're going to have to babysit my, my sons. She would say, I'll keep David, but you're uh, Jeff, my brother. She's like, I'm not going <laughs> to keep That is you. funny. So you always had a special bond with her. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, and it, and it was, I think I liked her, her humor. She was always funny. She was always irreverent. Um, and I was irreverent without even knowing it as a child. Like I didn't have the same, reverence for the things that the people around me did because I was trying to understand it not just place it on a pedestal and yeah. never question you know yes that is something so sacred and have you talked to your mom about your experience because I think on clubhouse when you were speaking I don't remember if you said that you shared with your family or you haven't shared yet about the near-death experience well, since that moment, since that clubhouse um, conversation, I did talk to my mother a little bit about it. And um, I do remember her, because um, she, she was suggesting it. I mean, because I did have another aunt who passed as well, who loved me. Um, so it could have been her. But I, but I remember telling my, my mother that it could have been her sister. And, um, and I think I described because I think she had like a wig on mm -hmm. that, that didn't, that wasn't like a, a very flattering wig. <laughs> so you remember that. <laughs> and I remember seeing my, my aunt Anne wear, wear a wig like that when she was in a hurry or when somebody was rushing in the house, like she would just put it on. Or yes, something. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's great. It's good that you have that memory to, and you know what? It's, it's funny how that sense of humor could be played into all of this you know? Yeah. And it, and it makes sense that she would, she would do that because she was, she didn't care about a lot of the things that a lot of other people cared about. Right. But, um, yeah. Now, thank you for sharing this space with us, everyone that's going to be listening to this. And with me, I feel so grateful. I feel an overwhelming sense of love for you to be the one to share this message with the world. And I know you're going to continue to do that with more people. And I really want to hear what you feel when you, there was a moment on clubhouse where you talked about how David, you as David were lying there, but it was David. It wasn't the person that was looking or the soul that was looking down. Right. Yeah. That, that was, that was like, um, probably the biggest the most impactful part of the entire experience outside of just experiencing the void itself that or heaven um, was seeing myself dead and realizing that that was not me, you know, 
and um and also understanding that they that not only David was David is dead, is his mind is dead too. The, the way that he thinks, um, um, even his ego. Like I wasn't any of that. Like I wasn't any of that. And I was observing it, trying to understand as I was looking at it. Like what am I then? Like what am I? And um, and uh, what made sense to me was when I was in the void was that I was the same thing that I was feeling, you know, I was, I was light, I was love, um, uh, uh, um, compassion, all of those things, but energy and, and that energy contained a lot of information too. And, and there's, and there's no way to really ground all of that in your body for, well, at least not in mine. Like I wasn't able to, to ground that experience, that feeling in my body without, I, I remember trying to return there in a meditation and it was so overwhelming that I just cried. It was beautiful. It wasn't, it wasn't negative, but I cried. My body couldn't contain the emotion that, you know, I was like, I was so happy that I just broke down crying. But um, yeah, I don't know if I answered the question. I sometimes ramble. Definitely. No, you did. You answered the question. And that brings me to my one of my next questions. And I know we're kind of towards the end of getting this information. There's so much more that we could go into. I could talk about this for hours with you, but we can come back. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. We could have another episode and we can go deeper. We could talk about past lives and all of that maybe another time. Cause I know that there's more that you've spoke about um about that. But how has this changed your life now since you've come back? Um since the ND, have you noticed a different way of life that you've felt like the person that you are? Do you feel different coming back from that experience? Yeah, um, I feel very different. And and it, I mean, in terms of like trying to reintegrate into society, that hasn't that hasn't been easy at all. I yeah. got yeah, what I felt there was almost like I intuited like the foundation of like this creation of this place, like the the background, like what's in the what's um the material behind you know creation, right? And I felt like I not only saw that, but I felt something from it, like it was sharing something, you know. And then when I came back here and I saw like this iteration of that beautiful feeling and that beautiful material, that beautiful you know blackness. It just hurts. Like it hurts because I see a lot of unnecessary pain. I feel so much pain. I feel so much confusion. But I didn't feel any of that there, you know. And so it's like I, I understand this place. That place is it's almost like as above, so below, as below, so above. Like I understand there has to be some analogy. Like and in, and in my heart, I wanted to feel feel it, and I didn't immediately, you know. And I'm so I was depressed and not even processing when I came back any of the near-death experience for three and a half years I didn't think about it or share it pretty much with anyone you know um and I was just sad and and I tried to find jobs and I was just trying to to do the human thing trying to jump right back in the rat race nothing was happening no jobs were really um nothing was happening I wasn't I got one job I was supposed to be made permanent and the very day that I was going to be made permanent they got a call from Japan. It was a Japanese company. And they said that they were not going to hire um, contractors. It was the day that I was going in to wow. become 
they said they're not going to have contractors for that role. So I moved on and I had to, and I'm back looking again and it's just, I'm not been able to continue finding work. But since I started talking about my near death experience, still no money, but a lot of people have been reaching out and um, even stuff that could potentially bring money at some point. But um, a friend of mine started a company, he wants me to help him, you know, do some stuff with that, some sales and some um, business development. Um, uh, another friend of mine has been trying to get me to speak for years. And this is the first time that I've ever said yes. You know, so he wants to do a podcast something like that and I'm and I'm open to this stuff now because I actually feel because that was one of the biggest things that I returned with from my experience is that um, the, all of that compassion all of that love it just opens up something in you that makes you see this life differently and even though it made me sad to see it in, in the state and it makes me sad to see it in the state and to see people confused and hurt and war and all of this stuff really affects me but um but it's, uh, it makes me feel a deep responsibility for humanity. And it also makes me, I'm able to imagine solutions. Like I'm able to imagine things, a better way of doing things. I'm able to, I mean, like I see policy and instantly see where policy is going to fail. It's, I mean, I, 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 uh, as soon as I read something or as soon as I see an idea, I immediately am able to intuit whether it's for the benefit of humanity or, for, or whether it's going to hurt humanity. And uh, every idea I have now, I feel like I want to benefit humanity. And some of it is just simple things. Like if I can help people um, just make a little bit of money a month um, to where some of their focus is not just on survival, and uh, food and the basics, then maybe they will have more bandwidth to even imagine these spiritual concepts and these things, these more lofty ideas that will help us all, you know? Yes, that's so special and so beautiful. And it seems like your soul is pulling you towards what your purpose is meant to be in this world. And I'm sure nothing is the same from before that NDE because you came back a different you came back evolved in another way. And it seems like everything's unfolding now for you. So I love that your front friend has been trying to get you to speak. And I know just sitting in the, the clubhouse room, I could feel the energy like this, this needs to be out there, this message um, coming from you. And I'm so thankful that you shared some of your story with us. And I just want to ask you one last question. Um, what would be, um, what is something that you want to be remembered for in this life? If you were to leave today, what would you want to be remembered for? Um, I feel like I have a lot of work to do. Like, I feel like I'm with, with, with these new eyes, I'm seeing my life differently and I'm seeing what I'm supposed to be doing differently like now and so really the main thing that, because I've been a, I've, I've lived a lot of different lives like I've been depressed and sad a great deal of my life I've been angry a great deal of my life I've been um, activistic you know um, a great deal of my life uh, I've just been concerned you know but when my um, my near-death experience Taught, taught me that my depression was really a symptom of deep compassion. So the, the, the thing that I want to be known for is that no matter, I felt, I felt insignificant in most of my life, you know, racism, um, 
poverty, all of those things just make you feel small. Mm-hmm. So I've never really thought that my voice would ever matter. So if, if there's any way that my voice ever does matter, the, the biggest thing that I want for people to remember me from is that I went through so many phases of just hate and pain and sadness and all of that. And at the end of the day, the, the only thing that the, the universe revealed to me, the biggest thing that it revealed to me was love and compassion. And from that love and compassion, you can understand anything. You can fix problems. You can um, erase any apparent gap that exists between you and someone else because it doesn't. You, yeah. This is only one experience. And everybody that you meet is an expression of you and that oneness. And so for me, it's like, whatever it is that has hurt you or hurt people, like on the other side of that, I feel like if you really want to be better, like loving yourself out of that space, you have to love yourself out of that space. And when you can do that and you're able to take that love and and really, really concentrate it, (laughs) it it, it pours out, it pours out. And and even if you're not, that it's not in your personality because it's not in my personality to be, super receptive, like I'm a loner, you know, but because this love is pouring out of me now, people are reaching out and, and I'm receptive. And because I know that being an empath and being a loner is counterproductive. You're going to kill yourself by feeling all those things and never releasing them and never processing them and never uh, actualizing the ideas that are inspired by being amongst people. Because for me now, I understand that I have to, to talk to people and I have to communicate with people and I have to be available to people even. But I also have to just be amongst people in a very general way as an empath because I can intuit solutions to the problems. I feel their pain. I feel their confusion. And I can, I can come up with stuff that can address it. But I have to be out there and I have to feel them and let them feel me, you know, and just commune with people because because that love and that, that compassion to me is the foundation of any and everything that we're going to be trying to do as a people move forward. And you don't have to change religions. That was something that people asked me about religion. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, like if love and compassion and a deep responsibility for humanity is the foundation of everything, you know, then your religion, you'll even engage it from the perspective of service to humanity. You'll be more serious about your religion. You'll study it. You'll, you'll understand this, this, the ancient scripture that informs your religion. You'll understand, you'll, you know, like you, your expression of your religion is supposed to uplift everybody around you. You're not supposed to, to become a member of a group that now separates itself from everyone. And you're supposed to spread that knowledge. If there's knowledge there that you value, you're supposed to be adept in it and able to share it and that's the point in my opinion of religion but the unifying thing will be that deep responsibility that we have for each other i think that would make people engage their religions differently because we need them we need these these ancient teachers we need these um these texts because they help us put together put together our history here on this planet more fully you know and that's what, that would segue into reincarnation <laughs> yes. because uh, if we remembered our real history here, uh, we wouldn't be, we would, we would, we would get out of this a lot more gracefully. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. David, you gave us so much value today and just sharing everything that um, you've shared today. And I'm so thankful and I know people are going to get so much out of this and I can't wait to talk with you again. If you're open to it in the future, we can do another episode too. 
Um, so where can they find you and get a hold of you if they, I mean, I know you can't, you can't answer every single question all the time, but if they want to follow you online or if they want you to speak on their show, you know, is there a space that they can go to? Yeah. Um, I, I'm on Facebook. I have a page and it's just, uh, um, What's that? Facebook.com slash my tag on Instagram is just at DVD731. And that's just David without the vowels and my birthday, July 31st. Oh, my email address is david.williamson7 at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did. If you liked it, leave a five-star review on iTunes. And remember, subscribe to our YouTube channel too. If you can think of anyone else that would love this episode, share it with them right now on social media or email. And remember, getting results is a process of learning, applying, and reflecting. Stay consistent and continue to grow every day.